This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. Today I visit with author Ron J. West. He's written a book titled Corporate Caterpillars, How to Grow Wings, and the foreword by Jack Canfield, who was also the co-creator of Chicken Soup for the Soul. Welcome, Ron, to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Very happy to be here. You're a corporate advisor, corporate uh, motivator, and you've written a book that's 200 pages long. What motivated you to put this book together? That's a good question. It's really born out of 25 years of corporate transformation work. And just to explain the term quickly, corporate transformation is any large-scale shift and change in the culture of a company. And let's face it, some of these companies could do with some corporate transformation. Yes, and in your book you have outlined things like waking up automatic habits and seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly, transformational ideas. Which of these do you think is the most important? Mm. Well, I'd have to say all of them, but but there has to be a place to start. And, And this is as true for an individual as well as a whole company. So in the same way an individual would begin to get very self-aware of some of their habits and how perhaps some of those habits and attitudes serve them well, and perhaps in some areas of their life they don't serve so well. So if you kind of look at a whole business, a whole culture in a business, as though it were a complex person, you start to see how the world of personal transformation actually applies to the world of uh, corporate transformation. So I would say the, the key thing, though, is this, this first step. Awareness. And awareness is akin to kind of waking up. So it's a process of really waking up and starting to get aware of your habits and how they affect what you do and where they work for you and perhaps where they don't. So the contents of your book would work not only in corporate America or corporate United States or world, but also in our personal lives. Oh, absolutely, Jay. Absolutely. In fact, um, I I thought I was writing a, a book on... Uh, corporate transformation and and realize very quickly, oh, wait a minute, that they're not separate journeys. My own journey um, is is much the same as the journeys that the companies I've had the pleasure of working with, uh, the journeys they've gone through too. So it really is, is one and the same. And, and what I realized was so much of what I'd learned from the world of personal transformation actually applies to corporate transformation. They, they really are the same journey. They're not separate. And they are a chunk at a time. The the chunk idea is really because I think some of us, after getting aware and getting real about our situation, getting functional, um, we all tend to bite off a bit more than we can chew, and we perhaps start every new year with a whole bunch of great intentions, Um, and then quickly by February, we stop going to the gym, uh, we stop losing weight, getting healthy, and we're back to our same habits. So chunking things down is really all about trying to get your arms around what it is you're trying to achieve, find some purpose behind it. 
and then start to slice it up and say, well, what's my next best step? What moves me in the right direction? Because until you try something, you can't really know if it's going to work or not. So the idea is you take a small step, you try something on, you see if it's working for you, and if not, you adjust. And we lose a lot of that ability to do that and be open to that because we're afraid of making a mistake or making ourselves look silly, perhaps. So after a while, the older we get, the crustier we get, the less likely we are to try something new on, the more likely we are to fall back to our old habits, not all of which serve us well. What is your advice to to remain inspired or motivated? I have a lot of great ideas, but I run out of steam when I get down the road a little bit. Well, of course, I'd have to say, Jay, that you need a a great coach, and and as luck would have it, I'm available. Hmm. Um, (laughs) But that aside, what motivates anybody? Uh, Let's talk about intrinsic motivation, because if I try to force extrinsic motivation on you and say, okay, here's the deadline, I could hold you accountable all year, you still would not get things done. Your your habits, your bad habits, your limiting beliefs um, are going to get the better of you eventually, because as soon as you go unconscious about it, your unconscious mind is already pre-wired, and all of these things will come up and sabotage your efforts. That's what happens to us. So the answer is actually in order to stay motivated you've got to keep finding things that motivate you so if a specific goal an objective something that's important to you is truly important to you something you truly value above all else then take a small slice of it and start working towards it and recognize that as obstacles come up they are just learning opportunities it's not there to stop you it's there to teach you something so if something comes up, you go, okay, I was expecting this. And there's a whole chapter in the book about how to recruit lots of other people to help support that effort, because you're right. It's really difficult to stay motivated with something, even if it's really important to you and you're intrinsically motivated. Very, very tough without support from friends, from a mentor, from a coach, from a mastermind group. All of these things are helpful, because as soon as you tell somebody else about your intention, you're far more likely to achieve it more likely and that works for an individual and it works for a whole company too as soon as you go public with a new idea you're much more likely to achieve it much more there's also the challenge of negative input when you uh, put your ideas out into the public sector absolutely don't we all quickly find out who our friends are and that's true for a company too because as soon as you go out and put something out your competitors are going to be all over it. The point is, instead of playing a game and trying to position things and say the right things, if you truly are making a big change, you'll get an awful lot more support than you will naysayers. So even if the press takes a swipe at you, if what you're doing is, is whole, if what you're doing is going to bring good benefit to people and it's genuine, it will shine through. There's no doubt about that. And that works for an individual as, as well as for a company too. Describe the process of putting this book together. You've got a great history of working with companies and also with individuals. Describe the process of completing this project. <laughs> well, there's a story on its own, Jay. Um, I actually bought myself a nice leather binder um, 25 years ago. I sat down with this little journal and decided I was going to write a book. I wrote a few pages by hand and then realized I really didn't know enough. And I kept going back and buying a new journal every year or so for the next 23 years, pretty much. And I found them all a couple of years ago and realized I had lots of good ideas, but I really, I really didn't feel like it all came together. 
And it was that moment when I saw and had insight finally that the individual journey is the same as the corporate journey that I began to write the book. And so two years ago, I set about writing it and out it came. Uh, there, was, there was one obstacle in the middle of the book for me. Um, but essentially, the whole process was, was very quick. The book fell out very quickly. And what I found easy to do was to turn it into a kind of blueprint because of the way that I tackled my own growth and development and how I'd been able to facilitate growth and development in the companies, the many companies I work with. So I included a lot of personal examples. I included a great many corporate examples um, of, of all of this in action, this kind of blueprint of how to do transformation. Any underlying themes in this book that would motivate me as an underachiever? Well, I'm not really, um, but I'm just uh, well, using first, it as a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, the first thing I have to jump all over is, is your self-talk. If, if you call yourself an underachiever, then you will surely live up to that. Um, the thing to do is to realize that you know, we're, we're all out to sabotage ourselves to, to remain what we think is safe. And until we take some risks and kind of push outside of that shell, we're really not going to achieve anything different. If you keep doing the same thing, isn't that the definition of madness? You're really going to keep getting the same results. So anything can happen, any event can happen to you, and it's your response to that event that produces an outcome. If you would like the outcome to be different, then I guess what is throughout the book are many, many examples where if you follow this blueprint, um, everything that happens, including all the obstacles, including all the negative self-talk, including all the things that just don't work out the way you hoped, there's a, there's a reason and it's explained and what to do about that is in the book, too. So it really is taking you by the hand through the entire process of transformation. Since this was uh, least forwarded by Jack Canfield, any inspirational thoughts in here in this book? Oh, absolutely. And I think that Jack himself is a great inspiration. It certainly was for me. And having a chance to be one of his first um, personal development trainers in the world was a great, great experience. And so I guess the book is filled with, with my insights, um, and particularly in the world of self-development, there are very specific things um, that look as though they only apply to an individual and don't really apply to an entire company. So there's a great many examples of things that will make an individual successful working for an entire corporation. So the book is, is littered with examples of things that you would not expect or wouldn't look at as being applicable to an entire company. And that's key. I mean, we all go through a process, for example, of you know doing our vision statement, doing our mission statement, and then we stick it on the wall. Or what you learn in the world of self-development is there's no value in that. The value is in the conversation that led to that. The value is in attaching some emotion to that and feeling good about that. That that will make a big difference. That will keep you on track way more than any poster on the wall ever will. Well, distilling your book down into one or two sentences, what one thing would you like readers to take away from this book? That's a good question. Um, I think that only if the leaders in a business, and by leader I don't just mean the senior executives, I mean anybody that's bringing about change and trying to do things differently in a business, that if they are open to growth and development themselves, the leaders in the business, then they will inspire and facilitate the growth of the business. 
that's the core message in the book. It really is down to the leaders, those who would lead change, taking on change and growth themselves, and then inspiring it in the entire culture in the business. Because companies these days just touch so many parts of the world, and, and individual companies um, basically cross geographic boundaries, religious boundaries, political boundaries, cultural boundaries. If companies could just do things a little bit differently, companies could be a little more perhaps ethical, um, a little more careful in what they do, a bit kinder to the planet. Think of the difference that a company could make across the world. And that's all born out of the leaders in a business being open to change and growth themselves. That's where it starts. What's well, a strong core value, and many corporate identities are taking on that persona. What was the most challenging part about writing this book? Mm. The most challenging part for me, and I think I mentioned earlier on, when I got to the chapter on vision, I stopped. I stopped in my tracks and was struggling. Well, wait a second. Um, I'm clearly struggling with this thing called purpose and what my life purpose is. And I realized I'd been teaching it for a while, and we only ever try and teach something we need to learn ourselves. So what I found was I needed to spend some time to get really clear and comfortable that what I should be doing in my life, what I felt was my calling, my purpose, uh, was indeed what I thought it was. And I'm living it right now. This book, for me, is the start of a whole new career uh, that's all around consulting and executive coaching and keynote speaking um, around North America and elsewhere. And it's basically my life's work to share corporate transformation with other leaders to bring about these changes in the way our companies do business across the whole world. So the big challenge was getting past that and getting clear that, wow, until I was clear about my purpose in life, how could I inspire anybody else to live true to theirs? Well, it finally got unblocked. And I finally got clear about my purpose, as I've explained, and the rest of the book fell out very quickly after that. So that was the big challenge for me, the chapter on purpose. The book title again is Corporate Caterpillars, How to Grow Wings, forwarded by Jack Canfield. Our author, Ron J. West. Thank you, Ron, for joining us today and sharing your insight. Jay, they'll find more information at corporatecaterpillars.com. They'll find information at ronjwest.com about the services I offer. And the book is available in all sorts of formats, both Amazon.com and uh, Barnes & Noble, too. Thanks again for sharing your insight. You're welcome. Thank you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Among Hibiscus and Roses, a retired nurse's memoir, and the author is Sunhei Kim. And she joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great to have you with us. Uh, this is your memoir, your story, basically, of most of your life. You've written about serving as a nurse here in the United States, and you also served in South Korea for some time. Uh, take us back and give us some idea of when you were younger, did you always want to become a nurse, or was there something else that you wanted to do as well? Uh, uh, becoming a nurse was not my you know, first choice. My first choice was to become a historian, and uh, my mother rejected it. And uh, my second choice was to become a writer. My mother rejected it. And uh, third choice was to become a nurse. And that was my mother's uh, recommendation, and uh, I accepted it. I became a nurse. So when you first started to become a nurse, how did you find it? Was it a lot more difficult than you had expected, or were you able to do it, you know, easily? Once I accepted I'm going to become a nurse, I had to go through all, you know, you know training process, and uh, you know, basically you have to accept it, then, you know, make a progress. I'm sure you worked hard at it. Oh, like any, any nurses, all worked hard. So as we look at your book, you've broken down your book into different uh, age groups. Uh, you start out uh, with... It says, January 1st, 2004, my age 63. Now, is this kind of a... Well, tell us about that first chapter. What, how did, why did you start out, start out your book in this way? Okay. Uh, when it, it happened at my apartment. That, that was January 1st, New Year's Day. I came back from my dinner and turned on red, you know, television... There was uh, going on, you know, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Cronkite and the narrating and introducing the, you know, Austrian words and uh, about Johann Strauss. 
and uh, you know, so my memory went back to the you know Austria, Austria, you know, traveling and their history, and um, and the coming back to the you know watching TV. Then I you know my my personal situation at that time, and uh, and uh, you know this is uh, you know fleshing memory and uh, my friend the called me and uh, we talked and uh, once we talked you know three hours on the phone from the you know, co- you know friend in Korea and if I can talk uh, about the past for three hours I could remember a lot and I could write a lot so you know that is uh, 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 you know, deciding points to write my book. So not many records out there that people would find about nurses, about their life story. Exactly. Not so many. When I traveling in, you know, England, you know, I went to the British Museum and I met a, a, a student and uh, she was from Canada, and she was studying medieval women's social activities. And she couldn't find the data because those times women didn't leave you know, much record behind what they were doing it. And But we know they, they did a lot of things, but in the record that she couldn't find. And in that matter, I looked at my own nurse's career and uh, looking for the, you know, the nurses, how many nurses wrote it about uh, their life. And, uh, you know, you know what nurse does as a job, but how was the nurse's life? And um, I found very little, you know, nurse's, uh, you know, uh, life history in the United States and, uh, you know, worldwide, only few. So, wow, nurse, nurse was, uh, you know, uh, working a long time, and very few people wrote it about uh, their, you know, personal life. Maybe, you know, too busy to, you know, to write. And um, so, you know, this is, uh, you know, uh, something to, you know, keep in mind. There isn't many, you know, autobiography written by a nurse. So, you know, let's say I jump into the (laughs) subject. You take us back to 1951 in one of your uh, chapters, uh, 51 through 1962, 10 years of age to 21. And uh, was it, uh, by the time you were 21, had you had your nurse's training? Yes. And the 1951 was... uh, you know, my story uh, beginning with the Korean War, every, everything was a destruction. And, uh, you know, we tried to survive and, uh, you know, uh, became, you know, a Korean War refugee. And then, you know, I went to the Busan, South Korea, and, uh, you know, uh, had, <clears throat> had school. And uh, I went to the nursing school army nursing school and uh, by 21 you know i was uh, you know less to the nurse 
And then you have another section from the age of 22 to 24. Is that when you served uh, in South Korea from 63 to 65? Yes. I was army nurse for six years. And uh, that time, 1963, I came to Hawaii, you know, for the job training as a physical therapist. And uh, so the, how America was uh, so nice, you know. Korea was living in, in, the, in the disruptions, in the surviving after Korean War. And uh, so two countries were so, you know, drastically contrasting. One is well-to-do, one is uh, very poor, you know. So, you know, two worlds met. So, you know, uh, I came to my States, and I live here ever since. So you take us to 1966, you're 25 in that chapter from 66 to 70, 25 years of age to 29. Kind of give us a little idea about what that age, uh, those years, what you were doing. Yes, I, you know, uh, you know, discharged, you know, from the army, and I worked as, uh, you know, a public nurse uh, uh, to fight against the tuberculosis in, in Korea, and uh, Korea was after, you know, Korean War very poor and undernourished people, you know, getting sick, you know especially this tuberculosis. So, you know, World Health Organization and gave commission to the Swedish Save the Children to, you know, uh, manage this dangerous disease not to spread in Korea. So I worked there, and that is the most, you know, uh, highlight of my life, you know, worked for the public and the public's, you know, benefits. When did you come to the United States? 1971. 1971, so you have a whole section there from the age of 30 to the age of 56. It's chapter 5, 1971 to 1997. Uh, give us some of your, you know, a few of your experiences that um, mean so much to you. Yes. Since, you know, I came in my States, uh, let's say, you know, cultural shock, you know, everything, you know, language and the food and the lifestyle is all different. I have to face all, you know, those things, I have to speak English better to work, and, uh, you know, uh, I have to modify my food, you know, diet, dieting, all that. And to live with Americans, it was just fun. You know, all we are different, all look different, and a different lifestyle. And I live my life, and everybody live their life, and we cross-crossed each other. And, uh, you know, so that is life goes on, still goes on. Now, chapter number six, uh, you take us from 1998 to 2003, just before you decided to write your book, I guess, as you've already told us. So from age of 57 to 62, what's, 
What's the significance of this time period? What, why did you single out those years? Oh, because uh, that time I retired. You know, retiring is uh, not uh, like a changing job. It's, uh, you know, getting off from the all, you know, hectic activities as a worker. Now you're becoming totally individual to live the way you want to live. And, uh, and you know, all, all this year since I came to the United States, I was traveling a lot here and there, and uh, I saw great things. I heard many, you know, beautiful stories. And uh, so, I, you know, that time is my relaxing time. And looking back, you know, my life, and uh, I had the time to remember and to write. So you are basically doing one of the things you've always wanted to do, be a writer, and even a historian, being uh, obviously uh, sharing your history with the world. Yes, me and the world, me and the, the other people. You know, we're all in it together. Right. And one of your philosophies of life it comes across very clear in your book. There is life besides your job. Life is not a job. Uh, job is, uh, you know, uh, make you work, make a living. And your personal life is, you know, you know not totally related to the job. You have, uh, you know, your personal life and you have family life. You have, uh, you know, uh, you know, the other activities to combine. So, you know, uh, uh, you know many times the job is uh, dominating our life, but that is not all we think about the job. We've been listening to Sunhai Kim. She is the author of her book, Among Hibiscus and Roses. This is her memoir, a retired nurse's memoir. Tell us how to get your book. How do we order your book? Oh, you know, you can go to the, you know, your local, uh, you know, bookstore. Or, you know, you can order to the, you know, through the iUniverse. Well, we appreciate you being with us and sharing information about your book. Thank you so thank, much. Thank you very, very much. Have a happy life. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Age Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there we can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us. 
for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Chronicles of Lux Veritas, Evil at the Gates, and the author is Christopher Dignan, and Christopher joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Christopher. Hello. Well, you're a writer of epic fantasy. Uh, this is just a complex story, but an incredible fun and page-turning kind of fantasy, which everybody loves. You say it's the tale of a teenager who, with the help of the divine sword, Lux Veritas, is on a quest to defeat Lord Chaos and restore peace in Purgatory and find his way back home alive. Sounds well, like it has all the it. elements. What's that? <laughs> well, we tried to include all the elements. Uh, hopefully we did a good <laughs> job of it. Um, I think I did. I think it's an entertaining story uh, uh, for teenagers and for, for everyone. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it seems complex on the surface, but we tried to um, make it as... Uh, as simple as possible for for the reader. Well, in the simplicity is in the complexity, which makes fantasy, I guess, as appealing as it is and as popular as it is, because you just kind of let your imagination run wild when you do this. Well, that was the idea. I just, uh, you know, I had a story to tell, and um, uh, I started to to write, and it it did start to get more and more complex because. Uh, Certainly, when you go into fantasy, you have to make sure that your world is coherent and it, it makes sense. Um, and so, um, but it's a lot of fun. That's that's the fun part. And so, um, you know, I try to simplify the what might appear to be a difficult uh, environment or a difficult story into its sim- simpler parts. And uh, and I think uh, it flows pretty good in, in the book. You're a teacher. Are you trying to teach us anything in this book, or is it just for fun? Well, honestly, it's just for fun. Um, that was the, the the first objective. It's just to write for the fun of it, my fun. <laughs> it's kind right. of selfish, but it was my fun. Uh, you know, there were times I couldn't put the, the pen down. I had so much to tell, and I was having so much fun, and, and that's that's the truth. But um, yeah, you can take a lot out of it as well because um, in the story, there's underlying, you know, deeper philosophical elements that I touch on. I, you know, I don't want to dwell on it too much you know i'm not asking the reader to to ponder too deeply but just to touch on it as you go along to make it that much more interesting so tell us about the main characters give us a a little kind of an overview of a few of them well the the main character of the story uh, is a young teenager of about well 15 16 years of age um high school hockey player his name is uh solace gambit and uh, and he's the hero of the story. He, he inherits the this divine sword, which is uh, called Lux Veritas. He gets it from the shaman, and then he goes on to a mission. So he's the one who handles um, the bulk of the action uh, in the story. He's the responsible one, whether he likes it or not. And then we have his good buddy that goes along for the ride, so to speak. Uh, I mean, they're all unwilling participants. It's just kind of, it's, you know throw it upon them to, to do this, to go on to this mission. His name is uh, Dorian Bishop. That's his good buddy. Uh, and uh, he goes along for the ride. 
and he's his partner in the story. There's also um, Amy Jolica, and uh, Amy Jolica is um, the love interest of Sola's Gambit, and she got gets caught up in this story as well, a little bit by accident. Um, and but she she has an important role as well in the story. And then there's other characters that we'll meet once we get to um, Purgatory, because this is the afterlife. So they step into you know Purgatory, which is kind of a Middle Earth kind of environment. If you recall the Lord of the Rings, it's a little bit like that. It's very, um, you know, uh, empirical, tangible environment, you know. And so uh, those are the main characters. Um, then there's the wise old man Senex, which they meet in the afterlife and, and fight him. The Elkin uh, uh, guide and uh, archer that, you know, shows them the way uh, through this um, land of uh, of adventure, let's just say. Well, this land of adventure, which has a lord of darkness, Chaos. Is that his name? That's it. We have uh, Chaos, the lord of darkness. And um, uh, at the source, this is um, a story which tries to settle the eternal question, you know, between uh, the lord creator and the lord of darkness. I mean, it's on a very ontological, (laughs) um, existential um, story here. So... um, and the antagonist is uh, Lord Chaos, and um, uh, Sola's Gambit goes on to him. He doesn't know he's on a mission. He finds out when he gets there, what is he doing there, and he finds out um, soon enough that he needs to, in order to get back home to Earth, because he gets the afterlife unintentionally, um, that he needs to complete this mission, and, and ultimately he needs to defeat Lord Chaos, uh, to put an end to his conquest of uh, of uh, the afterlife and eventually the universe, and um, right now he's on, you know, he's uh, going from uh, his abode, which is Tartarus, which is hell, basically in the story, and he's gone into Purgatory and it's taken over Purgatory, and pretty soon he's going to get to the doors of heaven and he's going to knock that down, and um, if he does so, then he's going to be able to. Uh, conquer Earth and the rest of the universe. So it's the to-be-or-not-to-be question, uh, uh, you know, at the source. So, yeah. And you're trying to help, I guess, teenagers uh, who would love to read this. You're kind of helping them wrestle with how they would uh, deal with this kind of scenario, this kind of a challenge, you know, to, uh, as you put it, uh, to figure out uh, who am I, you know, why am I here, what must I be doing, kind of uh, finding identity, I guess, at, at, a, uh, at a young age. Well, that's it. I mean, I mean, teenagers do that anyway. I think that, you know, I think we're all born philosophers to begin with, you know. What am I doing here? Who am I? I mean, babies do that, I think, <laughs> when they first come out of the womb, you know. And so we're always trying to answer these questions, and teenagers do it a lot, of course, you know, and... And, um, yeah, we're trying to answer the questions um, through Sola's Gambit, you know, um, who am I, what am I doing here, uh, what, is, what is this, what is reality, you know. And so, you know, in, in a fun way, I, I include this in the story and, um, and by taking the, the reader into the afterlife and trying to ponder ethical questions, um, you know, whether, you know, what is good, what is wrong, uh, does it does it matter at all? Um, and so, and, and to answer these existential questions, you know, 
who am I, why am I here? And, uh, and so we find out a lot about ourselves as, as we read the story through uh, Solo's uh, Gambit to Hero. And it's a psychological uh, battle. This is psychological warfare. Well, it, in, it is, because it's, a, it, it's all about willpower. And um, it comes down to, I mean, that's what's different about this story is, um, you know, it's, it's an epic psychological uh, battle. I mean, there is a lot of um, physical uh, clashes in the, in the book, obviously. But um, ultimately, it comes down to uh, a war of will, you know, to impose the to be or not to be, which came first, the chicken or the egg, you know, and uh, who should be. Uh, ultimately the ruler of the universe, you know, was, did the light come before the darkness or the darkness before the light, you know, and in order for Solus Gambit to succeed, he needs to more or less um, come to terms with it and answer that question. And uh, Lord Chaos is not an easy foe. He doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, enter battle with a, with a sword himself, you know, he, he he's going to ask, he's going to put you to the test, uh, you know, psychologically and philosophically speak, speaking, and he's going to test you. And Solus Gambit has to go through, through all of this uh, in, in the book. And so one of his main teachers is the wise old druid? Yes, yes. Um, there's a wise old druid. Uh, his name is Senex of Morphos, Morphos being a region of uh, purgatory, or purgatory as I called it. And um, he's his guide. He's been there for a long time, and he's made a life of himself for himself in this world. Uh, he lives in a village uh, along the, uh, the Sea of Morphos, and, um, and Phidem, who's an Elkin, who meets Solus Gambit in the afterlife, takes him to see this old man who was, you know, a human being who was himself uh, passed on and is now living in purgatory trying to um, uh, re- redeem himself, you know, to perhaps someday have access to um, Elysium, which is heaven. And so he's a wise old man. He's, uh, he's, he's uh, got a lot of experience, and um, he knows about Lux Veritas, the sword. Um, he's been in Purgatory for a long time, and he's expecting uh, solace. I mean, we find that out in the story, and, and then he, he, uh, he teaches him what he needs to know um, in, in various different methods. And so uh, he's very helpful. He goes on, he follows uh, along... Uh, for the for the, the quest as well, he goes on on the same path as his um, Solus Gambit um, and tries to help him along the way. And this magnificent sword which Solus has, uh, Lex Veritas, literally yes. comes alive according to his command. Well, yes, yes, I know it. It does come alive upon his command, but it's a very tricky sword because the sword itself is the uh, means the truth is my light. In other words, it is the antithesis of wrongdoing, of evil. So you can only use the sword uh, in very, in a very particular way, and it's not everyone that can do it. Your your intents have to be good. It can almost read your intentions, and you cannot use it to for evil purposes alone. Um, it won't allow you to do that. But when it comes to uh, rectifying what has been done wrong and you know how to use the sword, it will respond to your wishes, so therefore to your command. But um, you need to, this is not a simple sword to use. You have to be able to uh, have 
an understanding of who you are yourself and trust yourself and and all all of that uh, all those elements in order to be able to control this sword and get it to act upon your wishes so um, not everyone can do that and that's why Solus Gambit is the chosen one and this sword this you're very proud of, of this Lex Veritas because it is so original and unique it's not like any other sword in, in any kind of fantasy well, well, it's not because, you know, I, without going too much into detail, I, I mean, this is the sword of Genesis, so to speak. It came in the very beginning when there was, you know, uh, the dispute between uh, um, Lord, the Lord Creator and, and Lord Chaos. And, and um, the Lord Creator made this sword, Lux Veritas, and, um, you know, put Lord Chaos in its place. Uh, to begin with, with it, to begin with. So um, he sent him to Tartarus, which is uh, hell, if you will, uh, where he's been dwelling for, for quite a while. And, but nothing is forever. And so now he's, Lord Chaos is coming back to life, so to speak. And he needs to, the only thing that can really stop him is his sword, Lux Veritas. Ultimately, it's the only thing that can stop him. So he wants to possess it uh, and destroy it, if possible, um, mm -hmm. so that he can, he has a, um, you know, the freedom to do whatever he wants, pretty much, in the universe. And so, Lux um, Veritas is a very, very different sword. It, it, um, it was created in the very beginning, and uh, it has uh, essential powers that stem from the source of light, which is the Lord Creator. That, very, very, very interesting. Yeah, I love it. This psychological battle, this war of wills, this epic fantasy tale. We've been listening to the author Christopher Dignan, and the title is The Chronicles of Lux Veritas, Evil at the Gates. Christopher, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can uh, find it on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. You can order it online and iUniverse.com as well. Uh, iUniverse being the publisher, uh, you can get it in soft cover, hard cover, ebook version. So uh, it's it's available to you. I think um, I, I'd go to Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. It's uh, you can find it there online, and that's the easiest way probably to to get a hold of it. Christopher, tell us about your website. Well, I do have a website, and uh, you can find it on the internet. It's uh, ChristopherDignan.com. Very simply, so ChristopherDignan.com and that's where you will find the Chronicles of Lux Veritas. Um, I also have a Facebook page where you can join me. It's at the Chronicles of Lux Veritas. Very simply, the title of the book, uh, the Chronicles of Lux Veritas. Um, you can also reach me at Christopher Dignan at WordPress.com. I have a blog which I try to be faithful to every once a week or once every other week. And uh, there you can read some of my thoughts uh, about uh, life in general and the book. And... Um, as well, uh, I'm on Twitter. I, I don't use Twitter too much right at the moment, but uh, uh, you can find me at Chris Dignan. So there you have it. Right, and Dignan is D-I-G-N-A-N. -N. That's it. Thank you so much, Christopher, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.